Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to Aerospace Nation. Today we're pleased to welcome Lieutenant General Leah Lauterbach, the Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance and Cyber Effects Operations. She has a wide portfolio that includes serving as the Air Force's Chief Intelligence Officer, as well as leading the service's electromagnetic spectrum enterprise. Now, in an era of widespread modernization efforts and ever greater competition in the cyber, MSO, and information domains, her task has never been more important. So with that, what I'd like to do to kick things off today is give Leah an opportunity to share her perspective. So thanks again for being here, Leah, and over to you for your introductory remarks. Well, thanks, General Deptola. Dave, it's nice to be here. Uh, thank you again for having me. Um, it's an awesome time for me to be able to have a conversation about ISR, uh, and that uh, that is the focus I'd like to have today, but happy to have any uh, uh, answer any other questions and have a discussion on the rest of the portfolio. Uh, it's a pretty large portfolio, I will tell you. Um, every day is a, is a surprise as to <laughs> what it is that I walk into at the Pentagon, but um, uh, but a challenge and uh, uh, something that I, I look forward to on a daily basis. So what I wanted to talk about today, um, just to get us started, is um, I, I saw this technique out of Lieutenant General Scotty Barrier just last week uh, at an INSA conference, uh, an INSA dinner. And so Scotty Barrier, uh, director of the DIA, and he's got uh, over 40 years in the Army. So he's seen four different armies. That's how he, uh, he describes it. So I want to describe the the three different air forces that I've seen and, uh, and really look at it from an intelligence perspective. Uh, the first uh, first Air Force that I would say that I was part of, right? Um, 1993, just after Desert Storm, we show uh, an immense amount of capability from an air power perspective, and of course from a space war, right? First kind of space war that we uh, that we executed. Um, intelligence, I would say, in that decade, from where we go from 1993 to around 2003, at the beginning of OIF, um, is uh, um, is limited, uh, very much limited, limited in the number of sensors. Uh, limited in the ability to actually integrate intelligence coming from various sensors, limited in the ability that you as a, uh, you know, you as a customer at that time, um, as a fighter pilot, uh, we weren't able to necessarily share the intelligence um, uh, at different security classifications uh, because of the tight you know, the tight-lipped uh, uh, policies and, uh, and sharing uh, environment that we had at the time. So limited. Nonetheless, we we talked about constructs and concepts like F2T2EA, right, in the uh, end of that decade. We talked about effects-based targeting uh, and things that intelligence, certainly an ISR uh, enterprise uh, airman would absolutely perform and provide uh, intelligence to those uh, to those capabilities. So um, I, you know, I grew up in that. I loved that at the unit level, at the AOC, um, getting uh, getting my feet really dirty, my feet to right, my boots dirty in that sense. And then we go into OIF. Um, I don't count 9-11 as the, the beginning of this yet. I count OIF as the beginning of the of the uh, the second Air Force that, I'm, that I've been in. And that's because we actually demonstrated in Iraq, uh, in OIF, uh, the ability to take down an IADS and to do that in a quick manner, right? Um, and that, of course, using our F2T2EA constructs and, and other things that we did, um, dynamic targeting, uh, the intelligence that was supporting those, uh, those missions, uh, that was all, right? I, I participated 
participated in that at the AOC at the time, right? So that was all, uh, that, that's still that first Air Force that I joined. Shortly thereafter, of course, because that only lasted for about three weeks, and then we get into um, the long, uh, the long, you know, uh, longer version of uh, Second Air Force, which is the, uh, which of course is counterinsurgency, uh, counterterrorism, a global counterterrorism mission. Um, from an intelligence perspective, then I'm going to look at from 2003 to around 2018, uh, so 15 years there. Uh, and I think I characterize this as the time when ISR uh, comes in, into its own from an Air Force ISR enterprise, right? Understanding that I'm dual hatted, um, as you were once dual hatted. As as the heist or the head of the IC element for the Air Force, um, so I have certainly uh, part of me works and uh, uh, works and spends money from the from the intelligence community. But I'm an airman at heart, right? I am a, an ISR airman uh, answering to the chief of staff of the Air Force and the SecGAF and to uh, CFAX and et cetera, et cetera. And so that those 15 years where we do counterinsurgency, now we get more sensors, right? You, and you're very familiar with that. MQ1, MQ9, Global Hawk, uh, and now we actually are able to really build out the integrated nature of the DCGS into a global uh, uh, into a global enterprise. Um, stovepipes start to come down from a multi-intelligence perspective. Stovepipes start to break down or policy starts to come away so that we can share intelligence better. Uh, and so I see this, uh, the coming of our age, right, um, for the uh, Air Force ISR uh, enterprise during those years. And now, fast forward to 2018, this is the third Air Force that I've been part of. Uh, a pivot now to the new uh, National Defense Strategy, 2018. You could extend that into 2022. It actually happened to be in 2018 as well that uh, General Jameson um, in the Mitchell Institute actually unveiled the uh, Air, next gen Air Force ISR uh, uh, dominate, or next gen um, uh, uh, flight plan, excuse me. And so that was the beginning of this vision of the third Air Force, or from an intel perspective, I think. Uh, and I'm very privileged uh, to be part of that. Um, and I'll talk to you a little bit about our ISR vision and where we're going from there. Um, but the ability here now to, you know, take Title 50 capabilities, Title 10 capabilities, bring those all together. Uh, data, the the amount of data that they're wor we're working with now, and the amount of data that we'll be working with by the end of the decade, uh, just I mean, infinite numbers. Um, um, increased in order of, uh, of how much data we've got. So now we've got a problem of data-driven, problem-centric. Uh, we've got to be able to develop uh, our airmen, um, our tools, our enterprise, all of that, uh, to be able to um, sift through all of this data to be able to provide uh, commanders, whether that's CFAX or the combatant commanders, or if it's just senior leaders with um, intelligence to make good decisions. Um, so I'm happy and privileged that I've been part of this uh, for the last 30 years and uh, really privileged to be in a position that I get to influence and lead that, um, set that vision for the enterprise, and then uh, allow others to uh, to continue uh, going forward in the future. So thank well, you. Well, thanks very much for those remarks. Actually, that's a wonderful segue to kind of my first question. I wanted to let's dig into a little bit more detail okay. on uh, what you had to say you now. We heard a bit about your um, strategic vision for Air Force ISR at the latest uh, AFA Warfare Symposium in March. Mm -hmm. And I think you hit the nail on the head that it's all about providing uh, decision advantage to the force. Um, so my question is, do you believe that we're an inflection point in the Air Force ISR given the ever-growing complexity of our threats? And if so, um, what are some of your thoughts on 
how the Air Force is going to achieve that decision advantage, yeah. uh, particularly in the context of the ISR enterprise. Sure. Yep. Yeah. So, I, so the inflection point to me, if uh, if there was an inflection point, I thought that that would have been in 2018 with uh, the re rewriting of the National Defense Strategy. Um, but I go back to thinking that there are challenges in every single one of our you know decades, uh, every single one of our dynamic uh, environments that we're working in. So, so to me, this is just another right. It's just another challenge that we've got to overcome. Um, similarly, you know, right in uh, uh, during our counterinsurgency and counterterrorism days where we had to come up with a new sensor to do counter IED types of missions, right? And what do we do? We come up with a, right, we have great innovative airmen, an innovative joint force that is able to make that happen. Uh, so I think that we'll be very successful in doing this. But our way of doing this, uh, from my perspective, is, uh, is first we've got to develop this uh, this vision. Um, it's a refresh, really, of the vision that uh, the next-gen flight plan that, uh, that General Jameson and uh, the senior leaders had signed out in 2018. This one is is now connected to the Air Force Future Operating Concept, right? Which General uh, General uh, uh, Brown just signed out, I think, um, maybe two months ago, uh, maybe three months ago now. And so we wanted to attach to that Air Force uh, Future Operating Concept. Um, there are six fights within that Future Operating Concept. Um, intelligence is necessary for every single one of those future fights, right? To get into theater, to uh, to sustain, um, to, uh, to to be able to fly in theater, all those things. Uh, intelligence is is absolutely necessary. And what I would say is the, uh, the so the, the vision that we have, that, that um, and we're still writing this, and we're still in draft, and I wish that I could say today that uh, that we're, right, uh, that, that I'm going to publish it tomorrow, but... We'll, we'll but, have you back for when it's okay, published. Okay, sounds okay. great. Thanks, sir. <laughs> but the, uh, absolutely, um, uh, it, it really ensure, it really nests and focuses on the sensing grid. Uh, and I talked a little bit about this at, AF, at AFA as well. The sensing grid um, is is what it is is a thing, uh, and a thing today that um, that does exist. We just do it. We just do it on a uh, a smaller basis, not at the scale that we know that we need, not at the speed we know that we need. Um, but we've got four things that are associated with that sensing grid. Um, the first one is the sensors. You've got to have the sensors, and happy to talk about some of the modernization of those sensors um, here in a bit. But but let me just say that the the sensors that exist today, um, it's not just from the airborne layer. It's also from the spaceborne layer. It's also, it could be from uh, what it is that the Navy is providing or what it is that the Army might be providing. All of that uh, needs to be uh, considered a sensor. I would even argue that, um, you know, we used to call it, and we still do, I wish we would kind of get away from this name, but non-traditional ISR, um, where an F-16, right, be, might be able to use its lantern pod and, and provide some non-traditional ISR. Well, that to me, with the capabilities that we have and we're building and, and, and you know, executing today with the F-35 as an example, um, or the the B-21 in the future, whatever it might be, uh, we need to be able to get the information off of that. And if it's good for intelligence, then we'll turn that into intelligence. If it's just good for battle space awareness, then, then right, we can use that for battle space awareness or for, for targeting, whatever it might be. Uh, but I see those sensors as not just what we provide from an airborne layer. Uh, the second thing would be um, uh, the the infrastructure or the integration of all of that data. Um, and this is what we would call uh, the digital infrastructure, ISR digital infrastructure. Um, a few years ago, we had thought about this, and we've just, uh, and as a matter of fact, it was in that next-gen uh, flight plan, but we were unable to really ever get the resources, the funding to, uh, to start to architect that out. Uh, I am happy to say that we've got some money to do that now, and, uh, and we will be moving out 
on that very shortly. Um, I'm also happy to say that uh, uh, Secretary Kendall's operational imperatives, one of his operational imperatives that has to do with ABMS, um, is also paired very closely or partnered very closely with us to help us to, uh, to develop, develop that digital infrastructure. Uh, because we've got to be able to bring all of that data together at multiple security um, levels, right? So this is not just about uh, getting, you know, getting intelligence from a, uh, at, the, at the SCI level. We need to be able to bring it from commercial um, as well right. as one of those sensors to bring it into a, perhaps a secret level uh, as well then to um, uh, be able to use any Title 50 types of capabilities. So that's our digital infrastructure that we're going to build out. Um, third would be the orchestration. And or, I call orchestration as really like um, intelligence C2, right? I mean, somebody does need to do the command and control of all of the sensors out there. And so the intelligence community, um, you know, a number of us have globbed on to the, the word orchestration. Uh, in my mind, it's, it's just pretty simple. Um, and, and maybe I'm missing out on, on what it truly means, but I just want to be able to have all of those sensors, the right phenomenology, looking at the right targets at the right time, right? Um, so that's the, uh, uh, the inter or excuse me, the orchestration. Uh, and then the final thing, um, Excuse me, because I'm uh, I'm I'm brain farting. Ah, sense making, right? How could I forget about the human element of this? Um, and so the sense making, uh, honestly, this might be even the most important part of uh, of the sensing grid. Um, knowing that we are going to have, I mean, I talked about that um, uh, lack of data that we had in the very beginning of my first Air Force, uh, and now we're moving into a, a place where we've got so much data, uh, we can't sift through all of it. Uh, and it will be only ever increasing through the end of this decade with the sensors that will go up. So uh, so that sense-making needs to have the tools, right? The, the AAA tools, we talk about augmentation, artificial intelligence, and, um, and assistance, um, or augmentation. Um, I think I said those right, automation, augmentation, and artificial intelligence. So those, the AAA tools that we can arm our airmen with then uh, to be able to sift through all of that data. And the DCGS just a few years ago, I mean, they already started to modernize in this area, right? Um, and so we, we just want to double down on that. This is a matter of, um, I had talked about data-driven but problem-centric. So as opposed to, um, to, to watching a predator feed or a YouTube, right, I was a DCGS model a mission operations commander at one point, and I remember, you know, being on the headset and talking to the U-2 pilot about the things that we were going to collect on. Um, but now we're, um, what is the problem that we're trying to solve, and can we solve that in a predictive manner? Those problems come from the CFAC, uh, or they come from uh, perhaps the J-2 at the combatant command, right? So they're answering questions uh, for um, for the decision makers, no doubt. Um, and so that, we just, we need to continue to develop out that, um, uh, uh, that force of ISR airmen in the DCGSs. And then the last thing that I'll say about that sensing grid is that it's the tools, it's the, it's the airmen, but from an organizational perspective, it's also um, the targeting uh, capabilities that we have, the targeting organization, right? The wing or the group or the squadrons that support targeting, uh, and then bringing in the AOC as well. So those things, and I think you would, if you had, um, I know you did have the COMAC here, and I don't know if you talked about the nexus of bringing those three things together uh, from an intelligence or an ISR perspective to be able to get uh, decision advantage, uh, to be able to get intel intelligence to whomever needs to be making that, you know, the battle manager needs to make the decision or, um, or whomever it needs to be. And so I'm excited about that vision. So we're going to set that vision. Uh, I think that there are elements that, uh, that organizations out there are already doing. The MAGCOMs are already working on these areas. Uh, and then once we, you know, slap the table, sign the vision out, and then, uh, then we'll have 
resources, um, advocacy. We'll have things to stand on and link to uh, that, um, that hopefully in future palms uh, we'll be able to continue with the resourcing for that. So, Well, thanks for that. That's a very good overview. And I think orchestration is a perfect word for yeah. what it is that you're trying to do in bringing all of those uh, elements together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm struck by uh, a phrase I coined, I guess, 15 years ago now, that we're swimming in sensors, we need to avoid drowning in data. Mm-hmm. And yes. that has certainly come to fruition. And what you've described is how to deal with that mm-hmm. uh, situation. Uh, because um, if that was the case in 2000, six, seven, eight, nine, it's, uh, it's grown exponentially uh, since then. So a little bit of a segue to one of the areas that you talked about, uh, and we were chatting beforehand that now JADC2 is going to be known as CJADC2, with the C being combined and joint, all domain command and control. Uh, but clearly that's an incredibly important endeavor uh, and you and your staff have a, a big hand in um, developing that concept. So can you share with the audience a little bit on how you plan on actualizing or talking about the importance of actualizing um, this concept rapidly and that this whole notion of all domain command and control, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance uh, is just not like treating acquisition of another piece of hardware. It's much bigger than that. Yeah, correct. I, yes. So, I mean, I think it's important to understand uh, JADC2 or CJADC2 at this point. I, this is a concept, uh, and it needs a uh, it needs a, a conops. Um, and I think that the Joint Staff is working in that direction. The um, the Air Force's uh, contribution to JADC2 certainly is ABMS, and my concentration is how do I get intelligence um, to ABMS right to be able to make those uh, make decisions. Um, there certainly is a six perspective to this. As well, and we talked a little bit about that before. As far as um, what are the uh, what are the communications paths uh, to ensure that uh, JADC2 uh, would be successful in the future, and so we certainly have a role there. Uh, but I, c- I couldn't tell you anything too much more than um, yes, the concept uh, absolutely needs to happen. There is a lot of conversation uh, in the Pentagon about it, and I think that there's good movement. Um, you, <laughs> conversation doesn't always mean uh, um, uh, movement in the right direction, but I think. In this case, we can say that there is movement in the right direction for sure. Uh, and the uh, the Air Force, I know, is going to continue to move out on ABMS. And from our perspective, we will continue to move out on that digital infrastructure, uh, ISR digital infrastructure, to ensure that we get the intelligence to the right folks. So that's really my contribution okay. to it. Mm-hmm. Very good. Now, there are a lot of people out there that are paying attention to some of the big name um, retirements that are coming up in the ISR world uh, over the next several years. Things like uh, E3 AWACS, JSTARS, the EA, the U2, um, RQ4, uh, Global Hawk. Um, could you walk us through what the Department of the Air Force approach is going to be to replacing some of these capabilities? Because um, as most in our audience understand, it's not necessarily going to be another airborne platform. So. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. A couple of your thoughts in yes, that regard. Absolutely. I would so I would say that yeah, it, it's not a I'm glad that you use the term capabilities as opposed to write a platform, a swap for a platform. Um, certainly there are capabilities that we really uh, we need to in, uh, ensure that we have the um, uh, the ability to use when it is that we need to use those. And so uh, I think the big change here is one, the stand up of the Space Force. Um, and so that the uh, space-based layer, um, which does not, uh, in Leah's mind, does not uh, necessarily equate to the intelligence community owning that, um, that, you know, just as we have an airborne layer uh, that is uh, dedicated to Department of Defense, um, purchased or owned and, and operated by Department of Defense, I think the same uh, can be said for a space-based layer. We're in these conversations right now, uh, the departments, uh, both DNI and the DOD are, and so um, We'll see what comes out of that, but the um, uh, either way, we're going to have incredible amounts of sensors that are coming uh, that are space-based, and thus, um, you know, have a, a certain amount of resiliency, uh, more resiliency or more survivability, certainly than some of the uh, of the airborne capabilities that you had mentioned. Um, so the so I I see that there's goodness there, and uh, and I think that we just need to we need to start to TTX um, what it is that uh, the constellation um, that that entire enterprise might look like in a 2027, 2028 um, timeframe. And then I think that we can get to a point where, uh, where folks are understanding uh, that there will be an exponential um, amount of data that is coming um, and, and more persistence. I will use my time at, uh, at OIR um, as the J2 out there in uh, Operation Inherent um, Resolve. And uh, what we, we had an issue with, uh, not an issue with JSTARS, but an issue with persistence, right? We didn't have persistence to be able to uh, chase ISIS around. The, the things that we had persistence with were, um, you know, MQ-9s. Uh, Global Hawks would help us for sure, but uh, but we didn't, in a permissive environment like that, you can have that, uh, that persistence. That persistence um, is very, uh, very satisfying as a targeteer, right? Somebody that wants to be able to track, um, uh, in this case, the uh, ISIS uh, going from one, you know, maneuvering from one place to the next. We need to do that for peer competitors as well, uh, for when we, you know, when or if we go into conflict. Actually, I would say it's it's before conflict even, right? We need to. There's a lot of data that you can get from uh, GMTI, and if you have that persistence to uh, to to start to understand somebody's pattern of life. Um, and where do they go after Garrison? They go to their normal launch sites, these 16 launch sites, whatever it might be. I think that GMTI can help us that to understand and characterize the battle space well before any conflict starts. And so, uh, so I look forward to um, uh, to that endeavor. So when folks are looking at, and I think that the Air Force has had um, a difficulty uh, messaging this um, with here's the divestiture of a number of these uh, these ISR platforms. Um, but the truth is, is that they were backed up by number, a number of studies over the last number of years uh, that this is the right thing to do um, in order to get ready for a peer competitor and a potential uh, be ready for a, a peer fight uh, is that you need survivable capabilities. And so there are some that will that we can't even talk about, right? We won't talk about in a, in a venue such as this, but other airborne capabilities that we that will have from a penetrating standpoint that uh, that I think um, will also be well, certainly will also be part of that uh, that enterprise as we go forward. So so we haven't had a, a great message, but I think it's a good message, and we're starting to message that um, a little bit more uh, as we uh, as we get as we get closer to the times of these, uh, of the divestiture of some of these air, uh, aircraft. Okay, well, as we move to new moving target indicator solutions, 
both GMTI and AMTI. Uh, the program management of systems like E7 and the space-based MTI sensors uh, need to be highly integrated. But our systems, unfortunately, are industrial-based doesn't build them that way um, in an integrated fashion. So that kind of poses some significant challenges. What are your thoughts on how to achieve better integration to avoid some of the historical problems we have with stovepipe systems. Sure, sure. I, I guess uh, two things. And one, if I was the acquisition officer here, <laughs> I would tell you probably, I would tell you that, hey, we're trying to answer that. Uh, we're trying to ensure that we've got integrated capabilities um, every day, right, in, those, uh, uh, in the PEOs. Um, as they build out these capabilities. Um, as the intelligence uh, officer, I will tell you the, uh, again, I'll go back to the digital infrastructure. Uh, and I think that um, in, in commercial entities, they would say the same, is that there's never going to be a network that, um, that is going, to, or, or a, a solution to labeling everything the same in you know, every way, um, especially for the, you know, the Department of Defense, the intelligence community. Um, so we've got to have a, have a way of translating um, um, that data that does get um, that comes off of systems or needs to go to systems uh, um, through those through those various networks, and so that uh, is how we would build out an ISR digital infrastructure. Uh, and I think the same is to be said for ABMS. Um, to right, um, and if that's through the use of APIs or other translating tools type of, uh, types of things, um, but that's what we've got to get to because uh, otherwise, I just think it's probably a uh, it's too difficult of a challenge to ensure that every system out there is um, is devoted to this uh, type of language. Yeah, I mean, I think that we've shown that over the years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, you know, you you've talked about it, or alluded to it. We live in a world of uh, rapidly advancing uh, threats, particularly China. Uh, and to meet these, you've already spoken very well about capability, but we also need capacity. Um, the Air, but the Air Force here is planning on divesting uh, another thousand aircraft in the next five years. So, how is the Air Force going to ensure it can execute the full range of combatant command missions given these cuts? Sure. So, I mean, I think that I would take this as a uh, as a question about ISR more so than um, the numbers of aircraft. I mean, I, I wouldn't. It's not truly in my portfolio to be able to talk to all of that. Um, but I would say that um, uh, uh, you know we're not divesting in ISR. We're not divesting in the mission. I actually looked this up before coming over here uh, in the last couple of days. Um, you know that intelligence is a, certainly a core warfighting function. Um, it is you right one of seven warfighting functions. But for the intel or for uh, the Air Force since 1948, it has been a core mission of the Air Force um, until about you know mid uh, early 2000s when we started to use the term intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, and then that became a, a core mission, and then in 2013, uh, well, I'm sorry, uh, just recoined as a core function that General um, uh, General Brown is using uh, just, a, just a couple few months ago. So we're certainly not divesting in uh, that core function um, that the Air Force provides for uh, for itself or for the joint warfighters. So ISR is something that we're going to continue to uh, continue to invest in and, and execute on a uh, on a daily basis. Um, so if you go across this full range of, and, and the question is about full range of capabilities, it's not just about ISR, it's about, uh, let me use something else that's in my portfolio, is electronic warfare um, or electron, uh, electromagnetic uh, spectrum operations. Um, and I'm happy to say that uh, that General, or excuse me, uh, Secretary Ken 
Kendall, uh, when he started his operational imperatives, he noted that um, after the end of that first season of, uh, of the operational imperatives, he noted that, um, hey, I probably need to have somebody concentrating on electronic warfare. Uh, and so we developed a team. Uh, that team works at, uh, out of my office uh, just this last summer. And um, uh, and it's called the, uh, well, I won't, I won't bore you with the name, but b bottom line, cross-cutting um, organization that uh, it talks about what are the requirements, right? What are the gaps? What is it that we need to be able to target? What kill chains out there that exist that uh, that we need to be able to degrade or deny or or take down? And so um, they have done so, um, a ma marvelous amount of work uh, in the last you know nine-ish months, eight months, um, and uh, and have outbriefed the, the secretary just in the last week. And so as we go through this uh, this palm cycle. Uh, for FY25, um, we're looking to, you know, right, we hear some things that, uh, Mr. Secretary, we think that we can invest in, and so we're going to have those conversations over the next couple of months. Um, even if we haven't, uh, uh, even if we, we don't get it across the line uh, for FY25, I think, I mean, there are going to be things that, um, you know, we stood up, for example, the um, the wing, uh, the space, um, or excuse me, the spectrum warfare wing just uh, about a year and a half ago, right? We're making progress in this area. Uh, we're um, trying to, uh, um, from a human capital perspective or talent management perspective, is is understand who are these folks that live in this space, that have grown up in this space of electronic attack, electronic protection, electronic support, and uh, and how do we get them into the right leadership position so that we we know that this is a domain that we we absolutely have to dominate in, um, and we we don't think that we can cede that to uh, to other services um, uh, any longer at this point. So, uh, I think that's all that I would say about. It. It, um, because I need to give the secretary decision space, uh, certainly, as to where it is that he wants to go with it. But uh, we're, we're doing the analysis right yeah, now. Yeah, let me ask you a tangential question. Um, during Desert Storm, we only employed about 5-6% of the weapons employed were precision-guided. Mm. Uh, and if you look at um, Operation Inherent Resolve, which you were involved in, uh, about 98% of all the weapons expended were precision guided yet this is a capacity question we had three times the number of targeteers in the desert storm era mm -hmm. than we have today but yet the numbers of weapons that demand precision targeting have just exploded beyond exponentially mm -hmm. how how are you dealing with the you know, with the quantity issue with respect to target tiers. Yes. Okay. So the um, I remember uh, way back um, in those early years of uh, having to get out the, the the big orange binders. Do you remember the JMIM binders? Mm -hmm. I mean, when you actually had to do weaponeering and it was you know get out the uh, the calculator, uh, go through these big books. Obviously, um, at some point we went through to software uh, to able enable us to uh, to go through that that in a much faster uh, in a much faster manner. I mean, those are just tools that. Uh, uh, and, and certainly, you know, point point mensuration capabilities that support those uh, some some of those um, uh, precision munitions today um, getting much faster. Uh, right? I mean, we're just using technology. Is this an uh, area where artificial intelligence will play a greater role as oh, we move I think into so. the future? Yes, I think so. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we have to um, I hear about, uh, you know, I hear a lot about automation and um, and AI and uh, you know where we can take you know potential that we could take cuts. Um, 
in and various right capabilities, uh, intelligence being one of those. And I just um, and I I think uh, we have to be very careful about what it is that we think that the computer can do for us, the system can do for us, uh, because um, we are in a war fighting business, right? We're in a profession of arms uh, where people die, and so we need to ensure that um, we've met whatever the the ROE is. We've got the uh, the the uh, positive identification. We've got a high enough uh, high enough confidence level. Uh, we've done collateral damage estimates. I mean, these are things that a lot of times we I feel like we we rush to the we've got to have um, uh, in-flight target updates uh, to weapons, right? And we've got to be able to to do this all in an automated fashion. And part of me just wants to to step back and think about. There is ROE, there is policy, there is, right, and those are the things that drive us to sometimes, right, the collateral damage estimates, et cetera, et cetera. And so we need to, we need to find a balance there. Um, or perhaps the tools, right, those automated tools or artificial intelligence helps us so that we can have our airmen um, right, looking at uh, the things that are much more important. Right. Uh, and maybe that is looking at more uh, more in-depth as to comp or the, the confidence level that we have as sensors find targets, um, uh, do we have a high confidence in those or, uh, or medium confidence in those, and, right? Yeah, I, I'm reminded of the, in this discussion, I was thinking back to uh, Operation Unified Protect, the operations in, um, over Libya, and um, the USAFE commander at the time saying that if there was not the ability to reach back to the Air Force Targeting Center at that time, mm -hmm. they would not have had sufficient numbers of targeteers to do the accomplish the mission. So I, I guess that, you know my point is, capacity matters not just in terms of numbers of airplanes, but also in the personnel mm -hmm. necessary to accomplish these these missions. Yes. But yeah. speaking of that sort of time frame, um, could you share with the audience a a bit on your experiences in inherent resolve when it came to dynamic targeting mm -hmm. and where we are in that particular venue today. Okay, sure. Um, so, I mean, from a, uh, my time at OIR, I would say, uh, you know, there was still a mix of deliberate targeting and dynamic targeting. Um, because of the way that the battle space and Operation Inherent uh, Resolve was was split up, if you will, right? So JIDF, uh, right, the special ops folks working over in this area, the C, uh, the C um, uh, C flick working over in this area, the CFAC doing, you know, kind of, you know, overlooking, uh, trying to develop targets where it is that we were, we were trying to develop targets. Um, I remember, uh, the, the commander, the first commander that I was there, right. We went through two commanders, um, because of the, the time difference there, but, um, a high rate of fire. That's what he wanted was a high rate of fire on ISIS at the time. Uh, and so we, you know, we tried to produce as many as we could, but it was a, uh, a, a blend of deliberate targeting and, and dynamic targeting. On the dynamic targeting side of the house, where I felt like we, we had the best, um, uh, the best success is when we actually had the persistent ISR. Uh, and that was, that was proven through SUGETIF operations. Uh, the ability to maintain um, a two or three or however many MQ-9s, uh, overlay that then with perhaps a JSTARS or overlay it with right, a different phenomenology so that you could get uh, various 
multi um, multi Intel uh, or ISR um, phenomenologies on it um, include SIGINT, right? I mean, uh, there was a quite a bit of SIGINT queuing uh, that we were able to use, and then put a right put an MQ9 on it to FMV or whatever, get the PID, and then be able to to target something. So, so I see that as and and some of my most frustrating days when uh, in OIR was trying to um, trying to identify dynamic targets without that persistence. Uh, it was just incredibly difficult to uh, to you know uh, not be able to maintain custody uh, and um, uh, but the commander still wanting a high rate of fire right and so we so we would you have to take risks in those um, in those cases or uh, find find different techniques uh, but but like I said I mean I would just hammer on hammer home on uh, that persistence uh, it was invaluable for dynamic targeting uh, for the mobile targets and the mobile nature that Isis was presenting us of course uh, but the um, uh, and I, you know, you can continue that. That'll be in the future, uh, any future fight that we have. That every nation out there understands how difficult um, it is to target mobile targets, and so they'll continue to to invest in those capabilities. And I'm thinking about the change in the um, operating environment between OIR, where we had a completely permissive air <laughs> yes, environment, yes. to one over the South China Sea or in. Uh, uh, Eastern Europe, where the airspace is going to be extraordinarily contested. So <laughs> perhaps that persistent ISR layer moving from air to space, which then reiterates the importance of being able to protect that too. Mm -hmm. uh, but we'll save that discussion for another day Okay. Uh, in probably at another classification level. But uh, speaking of China, um, they're rapidly expanding and modernizing their spectrum dominance capabilities. And part of that is their doctrine of system, what they call system destruction warfare, uh, which is specifically targeting our information networks, command and control architectures, and kill chains. Uh, so how does your ISR vision address countering this um, over over the long term? So I would say that the ISR vision doesn't necessarily address um, China countering our networks. Um, in my other hat, right, in my six hat, uh, certainly working with uh, uh, working with uh, SAPCN, the CIO, as well as our other service uh, service brethren and the um, and the OSD CIO, we, we understand that we've got to shore up from a cyber defense perspective, a cybersecurity perspective. Um, we, uh, and there's a number of initiatives and things that are happening in that space. Uh, our vision, though, the ISR vision, to get to that question is um, maybe won't address, address it uh, directly, but let me address uh, information using information warfare. Okay, so uh, my my directorate or my DCS there at the at the Pentagon, we have taken on the lead role um, as the for the chief of staff of the Air Force for uh, information warfare, um, and ACC being really the the lead command, but not the only MAGCOM, of course, that uh, that is going to be um, operating in this space. But I see information warfare as the ability to um, protect and defend our own capabilities, whatever those might be, uh, if that's the you know, the understanding of what we're going to unveil next, um, or if it's um, uh, a capability that we have today to be able to protect uh, and defend those, and then to influence an attack on the red side of the um, of the 
Uh, and that doesn't mean China, right? It just means on the adversary right. side uh, what it is that we can do do for um, a deterrence um, or influence or misperception, right? Having somebody understand that uh, that we're um, uh, maybe taller than we are, or they think that uh, you know, right? They don't have the ability to get into um, these types of whatever, if it's networks or if it's uh, capabilities that we that we might have. So I think that there's a way for information warfare to help out in this space. And again, there's a lot of conversation that's happening at the Pentagon, uh, a, a number of initiatives that are happening in a, at a variety of levels, not just within the Air Force, certainly within the combatant command, but also at the OSD level of uh, where are we going from a um, you know, some folks like to call it perception management or MISO operations, but um, I'll just, uh, you know, couple all of that in these opera operations that are in the information space. Um, we, we know that we've got to get better at that. Um, right. Can I just say a couple more? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it would be a matter of... Um, from my perspective and what I am, uh, you know, I'm not getting into the operational perspectives, right? The three does operations and the three in this case is, you know, uh, might be running some operations or the three is uh, the, the MAGCOMs are doing that for the combatant command. Um, my job here is to try to institutionalize information warfare. To We've been talking about it for decades. Um, and even before I came in, I know it, right? Uh, because when I was a young second lieutenant at the AOC, we had an information operations flight. Um, and, and it hasn't matured um, too much more uh, until you know we now have an information operations career field. Uh, we're robusting that career field. Um, that career field is uh, actually functionally managed by the by the three, which I think is the right thing to do. Um, but it's that it's uh, making the airmen right. Uh, it's training the airmen. It's um, uh, building out the organizational construct. Uh, those institutional things that we've got to do. Uh, let operations continue because those are happening today. Uh, but let's build out the foundation of where it is that we need to go with uh, information warfare. Well, I'm really happy to hear you elaborate on information warfare. Uh, just real quick, mm -hmm. um, one of the areas that for decades now has been frustrating to me is when you look at the security pillars of our nation, and we use the DIME acronym, yes. okay, diplomacy, information, military, economics, we have cabinet-level agencies for three out of the four. The one we don't have a cabinet-level agency for is information. Um, and um, you're doing the best that you can inside the Air Force, but this nation has to deal with information at a much higher level. Uh, uh, institutional element, and again, that's uh, another topic. But one of the things before we we move to questions from the audience um, that I wanted to ask you about, and you already mentioned it, and it's really positive to see the recent increase in attention that the Air Force and yourself are placing on electronic warfare. Um, it's really a multi-domain enterprise, especially the cyber and space um, portion of the mix. So how are these domains being integrated into the Air Force's approach to exploiting uh, electronic warfare as an integral part of our um, of our approach, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I can you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, can you expand? Yeah, I can. Well, very probably very little, um, <laughs> because again, I'm trying to. Um, I don't want to get out in front of uh, of the secretary or the chief of staff. Uh, but the analysis that this, that this team has done um, over the last uh, last eight or nine months, um, if it, it, it is, it's invaluable. 
um, it needs to continue. And so we will uh, will continue in um, in this next you know season two, if you will, of this um, of this area. I can say though, you know, I mean, the EC thirty seven is a right is the um, uh, aircraft, and we can thank Congress for um, helping us out. I think the you know to give us another, I believe it's six. I couldn't um, don't quote me on that number, but uh, but I think that there is an understanding um, all across uh, the Department of Defense and uh, and on the Hill that this is an area that we need uh, more investment in. So we'll thank Congress for uh, enabling us to do that. Okay, but well, very good. Thanks for the. The insights, um, those were excellent. Now what we're going to do is open the session to questions from the audience. Um, you all know the drill by now out there. Um, what I'll do is call on you, and then please, if you raise your hand, go ahead and unmute your mic, and uh, please state your name and affiliation before asking the question. Um, or we've got plenty of questions right here using the Q&A function. So with that, let me... Uh, kick it off with uh, one of our uh, crack reporters from Air Force Magazine, Greg Hadley. Um, there's been concern about gaps in ISR between the retirement of aging aircraft and the fielding of new capabilities, either aircraft or from space. Do you see potential gaps, and what can the Air Force do to reduce or even eliminate those gaps? Yes, so uh, it's not something that the Air Force is going to do by ourselves by any means. Um, this is a team sport, uh, and that team includes the intelligence community. Uh, we've had, we continue to have questions or uh, uh, conversations with um, uh, with the intelligence community, primarily with the NRO, uh, but also the com uh, uh, the CSAs, right, the combat support agencies, um, who are the functional managers for those capabilities. Uh, so it's um, it's a, again a team sport. Uh, we won't be answering it all by ourselves, uh, but I would say that um, if there's a, we're going to try to minimize gaps as much as possible, right? We all understand that uh, uh, that we need to. To, right, we're working in competition right now, and that we've got to uh, be prepared for conflict. Uh, and none of us wants to have a gap, and so we're going to address that as best as we can. Um, but again, through um, not just the Air Force, but through uh, uh, Space Force as well as uh, the intelligence community to to shore up any of those gaps. Very good. Um, we have uh, one raised hand here uh, from Frank Wolf. Frank, go ahead. Yeah. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. Oh, okay, great, great. Um, uh, General, I just wanted to ask a little bit on um, the uh, persistent, you mentioned again, sort of the persistent ISR uh, issue in terms of, and also in terms of um, possibly taking advantage of other service assets as well. And I know, I guess the Army has, had, has been experimenting with this Zephyr uh, UAS, which is, um, an Airbus uh, drone that I, I guess flew for like 64 straight days uh, over Yuma, I think. And I just wondered because um, I think uh, General Carrilla at CENTCOM has sort of said that uh, CENTCOM wants to increase uh, ISR of Afghanistan sort of over the horizon targeting, et cetera, investing in long duration, high altitude alternative ISR can go up to, uh, for days or weeks. Because he said right now he's spending 8% of his time just transiting to the region to be able to collect, you know, ISR. Uh, so I wonder, do you know if the Air Force is um, thinking about the Zephyr drone? Or I just want to get some of your ideas. I think, I believe AFRL might have an experiment coming up with an experimental aircraft um, for for sort of this long, long duration, high altitude ISR. So I just wanted to 
to check with you on that yeah. for a longer, longer time to complement the MQ-9s. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the question. And unfortunately, I'll probably have to, to punt on most of that. And if I could get back to you, I, I absolutely would. Um, I just know that uh, we've had conversations. Um, we and, and I don't know how much, uh, if it's AFRL or who um, in the uh, in the Air Force is helping us to uh, to partner with the Army or to, uh, do, is there another answer that helps out for, uh, for CENTCOM? I do know that conversations are happening. Uh, you know how we, uh, I also right, know that we're, um, partnering with uh, the Army and their and Project Convergence, uh, so that so there are these conversations and the partnering that's happening. But uh, but I could not explain it to uh, the specific uh, question that you have in in, uh, in the matter of CENTCOM operations. So apologize for that. That's okay. Thanks, Tony. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's one from uh, Michael Merrow. Um, are you experiencing, expecting space-based GMTI capabilities to be available to combatant commanders in the 27-28 time frame uh, that you discuss? And if so, when might space-based AMTI follow? Okay, so I think that um, the, those types of answers I cannot provide in, uh, in a venue such as this. Uh, I apologize that I won't be able to do it, but, um, but I am... Um, I am uh, uh, hopeful, uh, and hope is not a right good uh, a good thing to hang out your hat on most times. But uh, uh, I am encouraged, I will say, uh, by the conversations, um, the partnership that we're having with uh, between the space force uh, and the intelligence community to uh, to get to a place where we can uh, we do have that uh, near persistence um, or uh, those those types of capabilities. So I think that's about all that I could say in this uh, in this venue. Thanks. Okay, here's one from, and uh, I'm doing my best to pronounce your name correctly, but um, Apruvra Menchinkar of Inside Defense. Number one, what are the prospects for tactical space-based ISR, and what are the challenges to achieving that? And then number two, separate and distinct, what lessons, insights are you seeing out of the Ukrainian conflict and how might those be applied to Air Force operations? Okay, so um, I would say on the first question that you have there about tactical space-based ISR, um, I, I would ha I would actually tell you that uh, any space-based ISR, whether it's um, owned by an intelligence agency today or if it's a or if it is a DoD entity, um, you can use those things in tactical uh, environments. Um, it's just a matter of how you know the scale that you can do, right? How long it is that you can use those in a in a tactical sense, so so we certainly have uh, experience using those in a in a tactical sense uh, today, and and there doesn't. No, nothing that stops us from doing that in the future. Um, I would also say that uh, I'm encouraged by, I mean, all of the examples that we have of airborne ISR being able to task that tactically, uh, to task that from, um, you know, if that's the CFAC or, or whomever needs that information. Uh, we've got a lot of examples of that. And so we ought to be able to use those methodologies uh, and, and extend that into space-based capabilities that, um, uh, whether, again, they're owned uh, and operated by the intelligence community or uh, uh, or by a, a DOD entity. Um, you had mentioned or you asked a question about uh, lessons learned out of Russia, Ukraine, um, uh, sp uh, you know, specific to um, uh, 
I'm sorry, I didn't, uh, I can't remember exactly what the question was there, Dave. What lessons or insights are you drawing out of the Russia-Ukraine conflict? Okay. And are any of them applicable to Air uh, Force operations? Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and th okay, so thanks for that question. I uh, Maybe not from a tactical ISR perspective, but I would tell you that uh, there are uh, the, the commercial entities that are being used um, by the uh, by the Ukrainians are things that, um, you know, we've used in the past. The Department of Defense certainly has had contracts and, and works with uh, commercial entities um, for uh, uh, for our intelligence collection um, or, or battle space awareness types of collection. Uh, but um, but now, I mean, I, I think it's all energized. Uh, there's a lot of energy that's going into it and a lot of effort. And we see that uh, the more capacity that commercial entities provide us, uh, perhaps that's more that, than that we can uh, capitalize on from, a, um, from an operational perspective. So we're definitely looking forward to that. The other um, item that I would talk about from a Russia-Ukraine uh, aspect is that our airmen are supporting UCOM um, and, it, and its mission um, to uh, to understand, uh, characterize the battle space. And and we're, you know, I had mentioned during those, uh, the first Air Force, the second Air Force, during the first Air Force, where, really where we, uh, we had a lot of targeteers that were doing target system analysis, breakdown of what's effect-based operations and, um, uh, and, and exercising. Boy, we exercised all the time uh, back in the day. And then um, uh, during, uh, uh, during our Air Force number two, uh, during all those counterinsurgency um, types of uh, operations that we ran or counterterrorism, we didn't have the opportunity to exercise as much because we were deploying all of the time. And, uh, and we were working in a permissive environment that wasn't allowing us to really um, uh, prepare for a high-end fight. Uh, so Russia-Ukraine has absolutely allowed um, our ISR airmen to um, to prepare for that, right? They have uh, they are they are getting lots of reps and sets um, over there in uh, in the Euro European theater, and uh, and I know that they're excited to do those things. And so, um, so they they honestly they and um, and I just was out in uh, Korea not too long ago as well. Same thing over there, right? That never stops. That battle rhythm never stops in Korea. So these are the two places I'd say on the earth that uh, we're able to get some uh, reps and sets in and. Uh, capitalize on uh, being prepared for a high-end fight. So that's what uh, that's what we're looking for. Very good. Here's one from Tom Jones and International News Network. Numerous military and intelligence community leaders have said that the U.S. government's habit of overclassification of information hurts information sharing with partners. As open source intelligence is playing a larger role in many operations, much classified information is becoming less relevant. How can the Air Force move to declassify intelligence faster or get ahead of open source intelligence and better help the U.S. frame operations in the public mind? Okay, good, uh, good question. Let me take a um, uh, give you an example out of my Space Force days. So I was the Space Force uh, um, S2, and then prior to being that uh, the Director of Intelligence for the Space Force, I was actually the Director of Intelligence for U.S. Space Command. And absolutely, we needed to have a message. We needed a message to the American public that uh, that the threat was real, uh, that there was um, there was a warfighting domain that China uses uh, and, and thinks of 
uh, space as a warfighting domain. And so we needed to be able to explain that to the American public uh, as well. And so we had, uh, and we worked with uh, the intelligence community to ensure that uh, what are the things that we can say and we can educate and inform. And so there are a lot of talking points that you um, that you all have already heard uh, that have come out of uh, either the Space Force or out of uh, U.S. Space Command. And so it's a, um, so the process is there for sure as to how it is that we can share uh, more information with the um, with the American public. From a uh, from a partner perspective, holy cow, we still need to do a lot better at this. Nobody would, I mean, we would all agree to that. That um, uh, we all know that we're not going to be fighting any fight without uh, without our uh, allies and partners. And so uh, we're you know we're chipping away at it. I would say um, from an intelligence community perspective, um, I, I shouldn't speak for uh, for the intel community, um, but uh, but I do think that we've got um, uh, you know we're, we're in constantly bringing this up and we're constantly uh, having the conversations as to how do we how do we chip away at that policy um, and a lot of this is um, uh, is uh, held up in if you will um, original classification authorities um, OCAs and so uh, I as the um, you know senior intelligence officer for the Air Force um, yes I have a I'm an op, I am an original classification authority uh, for the things that I collect on right or that I right that I have the authority to, to classify but uh, within the other Right, all the other OCAs out there, uh, they have that ability as well. Um, I, I would also, lastly, I guess I would say that I think we're moving in the right direction. We all want to get there faster, but we're certainly moving in the right direction to be able to share uh, more intelligence, share more information. PAI and CAI are certainly a way for us to do that, um, and I think that um, uh, we're all, all of the services are are working toward that goal um, that, uh, again, it was so frustrating as the OIRJ2 to, uh, to you know, I, I mean, I certainly had my 5i uh, partners that, uh, that were right next to me, but um, still unable to share as much as I wanted to. And then, and then for the greater coalition, unable to share for the greater coalition uh, to, the, to the amount or to the depth that was necessary. So uh, we've all worked in that space, and we know that we got to get better at it. Thanks. Uh, very good. Um, here's one from uh, Brian Everstein from Aviation Week, and it's on a subject that you and I were chatting about before we kick this off. With the Air Force and the NRO, National Reconnaissance Office, collaborating on future space-based MTI capabilities, how can the Air Force ensure that these multi-role sensors will provide both real-time dynamic tactical warfighting targeting along with support for the intelligence community. How much give and take will this development require? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, so those conversations are happening right now. Um, the uh, And they've been happening for a number of months. Um, and it's not really on the Air Force side. If you consider the Department of the Air Force, then it's the Space Force uh, that is leading these conversations for uh, for the Department of the Air Force. And, um, uh, and there is a way to do this. There is no doubt about it. We all agree that there's a way, if it's through, um, you know, uh, allocation, if it's through uh, as uh, as constellations or satellites come over a um, uh, a certain region of the air of the world that that combatant command right uh, is able to task that or has control of that. I mean, um, the Joint Staff today leads these types of methodologies for airborne ISR and uh, and others. And so we absolutely have examples of how it is that we can do this. Uh, we just need to we need to um, we we just need to continue those conversations and make sure that we're doing. 
And again, it's a team sport, uh, and we've got to uh, we've got to do this together. Uh, that's what I would say on that. Um, the, the, it, it's not a finished conversation yet, so I can't tell you where it is that uh, where we are in the movie exactly. But uh, um, we'll get to an answer, I'm certain, at uh, at some point. Very good. And I'm going to give the last question uh, to Aiden Poling. Uh, can you describe how you've seen China's electronic warfare capabilities evolve for the past five years? Broadly speaking, what's your biggest area of concern with uh, Chinese electromagnetic warfare capability? Oh, yeah, the biggest concern for me is that it's a home game for them. It's an away game for us. And I could say that for uh, for many uh, capabilities, domain, uh, other domains besides um, electronic warfare domain um, or the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, but it's a, it's a home game. And so what does that mean is that they've got a lot of capabilities, um, a lot of uh, not just uh, capability, but capacity, right? And that's what I mean from a home game perspective for them. Uh, they, they've uh, invested quite a bit uh, in all of those types of capabilities, and it, uh, that's the thing that is absolutely the most concerning part about this. How do you um, uh, penetrate that, or how do you overpower that um, uh, when you're trying to play an away game? Well, very good. Unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of this uh, Aerospace Nation, and uh, thanks again to General Lauterbach uh, for being with us here today. Really appreciate the insights. Mm -hmm. And from uh, all of us here at Mitchell Institute, to all of you in the audience, uh, and the uh, Air Force ISR C2 Enterprise, uh, we wish you all a, a great aerospace power kind of day.